All right. Good evening, everybody. Tonight we're going to be in Colossians chapter 3. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, Colossians 3. I think that's where we are today. It's what I studied anyway. It's where we're going to be. That's exactly right. I almost canceled tonight, and I'm not that kind of person, but I saw the hail and I saw the, the, tor- the tornado warning, and there's our children out there playing in the grass. <laughs> Caution to the wind, right? <laughs> Literally. Um, I thought, no, we'll, we'll be fine. So there's no place to go. <laughs> Grab each other. I don't know. There's no basement. There's no shelter. It's a, a machine shed that we're in. I mean, we are the poster child for, so I don't know. What's that? Bathrooms. That's right. Go to the bath. Grab a porcelain throne. and <laughs> They're clean. They're clean. That's an insult to our cleaning crew. All right. They're fine. All right. We better pray and get started. Lord, thank you for your word. We pray that you'd bless it to our hearts. We thank you for Paul's heart and his desire for the Colossians to win, to do well, to flourish in you. And uh, that's what you want for us as well. And we pray that we'd receive everything you have for us with gladness, with joy, uh, knowing from whom um, it's being sent, from someone who loves us with an everlasting love. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul takes a little bit of a break here in chapter 3 from the Gnostics and the Jewish uh, um, legalists and all that, and just gives us really good uh, practical insight into walking with the Lord. Some very good plain truths that you don't have to decipher, and I like that. <laughs> That's what I need. I pray that all the time. God, when, just, just tell me. You know. you know me. Tell me the way I need to hear it. And it's funny how many different ways God has to tell me something before I finally pick up on it. I was like that with any other subject in school, too. The teacher was a good teacher. I'm sure she was, but I had to take Algebra 1 twice. I had to take Algebra 2 twice. I just could not get it. But the tutor that would teach me for the second time through totally understood exactly, didn't have a problem understanding it. It was just the way the information was being conveyed. And so um, God has a way of doing that. And by his Holy Spirit, I think that's the the beauty of God's word, by his Holy Spirit, he'll speak to each one of our hearts and he'll break through. He's just a very good teacher that way. He doesn't have one style. He can hit every one of us in the heart the way we need to hear it. And so I hope that takes place tonight. In verse 1, if then, as he just talked about being raised with Christ, died with Christ, crucified with Christ, if then you were raised with Christ... Seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things of the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So if you go backwards through it, he's saying, look, you have all the promises and heritage and inheritance in Christ. You've got all that. And when he comes back, you're going to come back with him. You're going to rule and reign with him. We've, we've gone over all those things. So he says, since you know those things, since I've explained those to you in chapters 1 and chapters 2, let's live for Christ, for heavenly things, not for the earthly things. Um, we just went through the crucifixion, in a sense, with, with Easter and uh, Good Friday or a service here and had the big cross in here and everything. And and there's, there's the, the crucifixion or carrying the cross of Christ has lots of different ways to look at it. One of them, I think, that I probably focus on more than the others, and that's just a, that's what happens when you listen to a person. They have, they have their bent. My bent is, you know, you need to take up your cross and follow me. And, of course, I believe that to mean that we need to be a, a, ready to be crucified at any moment by anyone. Okay, you know, they have the nails, they have the hammer. We have to lovingly, mercifully, graciously, for their sake, you know, die on our cross kind of thing. But there's there's more to it, I think. And and that's what Paul's getting at here. You died with Christ. Like when Christ took our place, but we were we also died with him. So everything that has to do with the part that needed to die, died with Christ. That's been done and taken care of. You died with Christ. That's what water baptism is all about. Uh, 
water baptism is 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 a is a picture. Uh, it's a it's a, um, a an object lesson, if you will, of symbolically being buried. The old man is dead, and you and you come up out of the water, out of the ground, rise to new life in Christ. I'm a new creation in the Lord. That's the idea of what's happened in the heart. I'm symbolically showing the world. This is what's taken place in my life. I've died to the things of this world, to my sin, to my nature, and I'm right, I've risen now. I'm a born again believer, you know, in Jesus Christ. Well, <laughs> it is, it, it, it is what's happened. And yet the way Paul writes this, I'm so thankful that he did, because you get the idea that that moment in the water, when I come out, I should ought to be able to just kind of walk on top of the water on my way out of the lake or river or whatever, you know. No more sin. I've left it all behind. This was a turning point in my life, you know. It's sinless. And you don't even get halfway up the hill and you've already had thoughts that you wish, yeah, let's go back to the baptism again. I need to do this again kind of thing. And Paul writes this in such a way that he says, reckon the old man dead. Because he knows very well. It's not. You're still alive and well, and it's still there. And yes, we put the, our lives on the altar. We've sacrificed, and the sin has been paid for and all that, but it keeps, it's still alive. It still keeps coming back. And we have to reckon it dead. We have to make decisions to not do those things anymore. We have to make choices to not follow after that flesh and follow after that sin anymore, to yield to those appetites And so Paul's basically hitting that here in chapter 3. I want you to seek the things which are above. The crucifixion is simple. It's a long, agonizing, painful death, and you start carrying the cross, the the, the killing of your flesh, the moment you're a born-again believer. And it is an instantaneous death. It isn't, uh, you know, a a lopping off of the head or or a, you know, a guillotine or a, or a, or a hangman's noose or whatever. It's a long, agonizing, painful death. That's why they did it. That's why, that's why Jesus is sitting there for so long. It takes so long for him to die. It takes a long time for that flesh to die. And that's why he says at the end of it, when he actually leaves this body and goes to be, well, in paradise, but eventually with the Lord, it's finished. When we pick up our cross and carry it, We're telling the world, I'm dying to my flesh daily. I'm making decisions every day to let my flesh die. And it is painful in my life. I don't want to give it up. It's hard. But I'm going to do this. And when we all die, when we go to heaven, we're all going to say, oh, it's finished. You know, it's the same thing. That's another aspect of the crucifixion. When we pick up our cross, it's not only to die to self and to die for other people and to... to to be humble and meek and mild and and all these things towards other people, but it's also to crucify our flesh. That's why Paul says, reckon it dead. It's a daily thing. I have to daily choose to crucify my flesh. So seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand. I want you to look for those things. I want you to do those things. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, and these are the things that are in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away in the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. It isn't complicated. He just doesn't want us to think about the things we used to think about all the time. Cars and materialistic things and and the temporary. If you died to those things with Christ and you've risen to new life in Christ, you should be thinking about the things that Christ is thinking about right now. What does he think? Where is he? He's at the right hand of the Father. He's thinking about worship. He's thinking about people and love and joy and, and, and the attributes It's a thing deep in our soul and in our spirit. He wants us to focus on those things, the things of above, the things that are everlasting, not the things that feed my flesh down here. And so Paul's just making an impassioned plea to the Colossians. Look, from last week or from the time we last taught or got into this, you were were, 
you've been dealing with the Judaizers, the legalists, telling you to not eat this and to not drink that. I'm telling you, I, I, those have no value of eternity. Those thoughts in this, this do not eat, do not touch, do not taste, has nothing to do with your soul, your spirit, and eternity. I want you, Paul says, to be thinking about those things. They want you to be thinking about these things. Christ died to set you free from all of that so you can just focus on the things from above. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Do you not know that unrighteousness will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. You're not losing your salvation when you commit these sins, when you fall back into those sins, when you willingly walk back. You're not losing your salvation, then gaining your salvation when you repent, losing it, gaining it. It's not that kind of thing. What Paul writes to the Corinthians, what John says in John chapter 2, 1 John 2, what he's saying here to the Colossians, he says in almost all of his letters, these things are the reason that Christ died. Why are you continually walking in them as if that didn't matter anymore? Um, Paul says to the Romans that, you know, where grace abounds, you know, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. But, and this is a paraphrase you need to read for yourself, but does that mean, since God is so gracious and we want to show the glory of God's graciousness, should we go ahead and sin as much as possible so they could see how wonderful and magnanimous our God is? Look at how forgiving he is. I can literally do anything and he'll forgive me. Watch. Paul says, God forbid. You see, the reason Christ came to die on the cross is so that you don't do those things anymore. Uh, if I have a forgiving spouse, okay, you have a forgiving spouse, and you go up to your buddies or you go up to your gal pals and you say, look, I can, I can cheat on him as much as I want. I can cheat on her as much as I want, and she'll tilt take me back every single time. Watch this. I'll prove it. Everybody in this room knows that person is a dirtbag, right? Everybody. We almost all have to raise our hands. To, to think in our minds that this sin is okay because Christ covers that sin is the same as the story I just shared with you. Well, of course Christ will forgive me. Watch. No, we're called to not do these things anymore. That's why Paul says, you were these things, Corinthians. Stop being those things. Stop choosing those things. He hasn't given you, dying on the cross hasn't given you permission. He's given you access to grace and mercy and forgiveness but not permission. And so there is a decision that Paul says the Colossians need to make, and that means we can to choose to set our minds on things above. I don't have to. My propensity is to not to, but God says you must and you need to. And Paul encourages them, start setting your mind on the things above. Quit setting them on the things of the earth and the things above. That, that's why he died. And so he's encouraging them in that. So just like he said to the Corinthians and just like he says to the Romans and he says to the Ephesians and the Galatians and about everybody else, verse 5, Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, Put to death fornication, put to death uncleanness, put to death passion, put to death evil desires and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience in which you yourselves once walked, walked when you lived in them. You see how close that is to the Corinthian part that we just read? That's why God's wrath came. Why are you continually doing these things? Fornication is intercourse outside of marriage, and marriage defined as one man and one woman. Everything else is intercourse. It's illegal against God. It's, it's sin. There's no argument. The scripture says so clearly, that's sin. Uncleanness, kind of a <laughs> broad brush. Any kind of uncleanness. 
passions, evil desire. What is an evil desire? I was thinking about that. Um, they, they seem like really, really broad terms and almost as if they could be just synonyms of each other. You know, what's the difference between an evil desire and uncleanness or passion? I mean, it's all the same thing. An evil desire, I'll give you an example of that. What I notice, um, and I don't mean to pick on something, but I'm going to just for the sake of an example. It isn't that this is the only thing that's an evil desire, but I notice that there are people that have a, a gravitation towards, um, I would call it demonic. I, it's just the Halloween-y kind of things. You know, they love the gruesome. They love the dark. They love the blackness. They love the, they love that. It's intriguing to them. It's, it's almost, they can't wait for October to come because it's satiating to them. And I don't, there's other things that can be that, but that's a great example of someone who is called by God to move away from that thought. I, I died so that people that murder other people can be forgiven of their sin. And for me to glory and revel in that murder, or even letting that be an entertainment to me, those are evil desires. Those don't come from God. God is not a part of Halloween. God is not a part of the evil and demonic things that go along with Halloween, the the gruesomeness, the blood, the gore, all the things that go on with Halloween. That's not from God. Then where else is, what's the source? You see? Now, I'm I'm picking on it. I said I wouldn't. There I go. But... Sometimes we have to be just flat out told that's not okay. It's not. And then, of course, the first time you hear that, you're like, oh, I don't think of it that way. I never thought that I thought of it that way. I mean, in my heart, I never thought of it that way. But regardless, that's what it is. That's what the Bible says it is. And so Paul says, leave fornication. Stop it. It has to end now. It's not something that can go on and on and on. I'll just keep forgiving and forgiving. It needs to stop because that's why Christ died. Uncleanness in any way. Passion, just that desire, that overwhelming urge of, a, of, a, of an appetite. It could be anything. It doesn't have to be physical or sexual in nature. It can be anything that you have this overwhelming passion for. I'm trying to think of something that I have an overwhelming passion for that's unhealthy. Something I'd want to say in front of all of you, maybe, that I that I don't. Um, I'll think of something and I'll 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 put myself down here because I don't want to use people other people's examples. I'm, I have my own problems. Um, but if you feel that passion rising, and it it can be anything, it can just supersede your passion for Christ. It's more important than your passion for Jesus. Okay, that covers it. We're to put that to death. Now, he's already said that we've crucified ourselves with Christ, that Christ has died and we died with him, but he's also now telling us to put things to death. You understand the paradox, the difficulty he's having in explaining this. Yes, you have died, it's gone. And yes, you're assured of salvation and you're, you're, you're rock solid and Jesus has a hold of you. And yet, you still live in the flesh and your flesh still wants you to sin and do things that are contrary uh, to the things of God. And, and I don't want to just save you, I want to save you. From all of it, not just from hell, but also from a life of sin lived, you see. I want both of those things. So put those things to death. Covetousness, which is idolatry. That's wanting something, and I don't know, I've probably watered down that definition myself. It is wanting something that somebody else has to the point of you just take it from them because you want it that bad, and you would think coveting another man's wife. Okay, not that you covet marriage, that's okay. I really want that in my life, but is it? If God hasn't given me to that or hasn't brought her along or brought him along yet, me coveting it, can I elevate that to a place of idolatry? The most important thing in my life is to find a spouse. Is that idolatry? It could be, it could be. That's between you and God. And so therefore, I've got a great quote from a book. I never quote books. Right? In fact, I think I just told you last week, you don't need to read any other books. G.D. Watson. And the book is, Others May, You Cannot. I mean, already, you're like, oh, man. Here's what he says. If God has called you to be really like Jesus, 
He will draw you to a life of crucifixion and humility and put upon you such demands of obedience that you will not be able to follow other people or measure yourself by other Christians. And in many ways, he will seem to let other good people do things which he will not let you do. Second quote, which is very important. Please, I'll give it to you. I'll put it up underneath this post on Facebook so you guys can copy it down. I just love it. Settle it forever then. You are to deal directly with the Holy Spirit and that he is to have the privilege of tying your tongue or chaining your hand or closing your eyes in ways that he doesn't seem to use with others. Settle it forever. I'm going to do what the Holy Spirit leads me to. I'm not going to gauge my walk based on what I see normal human beings do, other Christians do. I'm settling it forever. I deal directly with the Holy Spirit. And if he says, I can't do that, then I don't do that. I do not seek others to excuse my disobedience to the Holy Spirit. I love that because it spoke to me so much. I'm like, yes. Because sometimes you feel that way. You're like, how come I can't do that stuff? Everybody else seems to be doing fine doing it. All these other Christians are doing fine doing this and that and the other thing. How come I can't? Because I, by the Holy Spirit, set you apart for something different. And I said, you can't. And they may be able to handle it or do it or whatever. I didn't even want to give the reasons. And maybe he hasn't even spoken to them about that yet. But for you, I have talked to you about this. And this is between my son and your dad, you know. And this is between us. I want you to obey me. I don't want you to, if, if, you know, David jumps off a bridge. You could jump off a bridge too, you know. Well, you let David jump off a bridge. You get the idea. Settle it forever. Now then, you are so possessed with the living God that you are, in your secret heart, pleased and delighted over this uh, peculiar, personal, private, jealous guardianship and management of the Holy Spirit over your life. You will have found the vestibule of heaven. You've got you to take some time to unpack that, but oh, man. Paul's giving some broad strokes here for the Colossians. This is general guidelines, but we can get pretty detailed with the Holy Spirit when it comes to covetousness. We can get pretty detailed with what is idolatry, what is uncleanness, what is passion, what is evil. What is it in my life, not in everybody's life? Not in every, I can't make a doctrine out of it. But what has the Holy Spirit showed me about fill in the blank? Does it need to go in my life because it has a, is a master passion of my life as opposed to Jesus? Verse 8. But now, you yourselves are to put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all in all. You need to put these things off. Stop lying to one another. You know, put off these deeds. It's a, I was trying to think of a good example of that. I mean, just don't lie, period. There's no... I don't need to qualify it, I guess. You have to be careful about these things. I, uh, that's something I want to talk about. Maybe not what the Holy Spirit wants to talk about, so I'm going to skip that. Um, there's just a lot of room for growth when it comes to lying to one another. I think we know what the typical lie is, you know. Um, but there are aspects, I think, of our lives where we lie and we don't even know we're doing it. It's almost a part of our business practice or it's a part of our, like I have to be really careful about that in my sideline job. Be very careful about lying. Not that I'm trying to cover up or hide something, but in negotiations, since you're trying to get the upper hand in the negotiation, oftentimes you'll misrepresent your actual position, you know, or you can. I try not to. I don't think I do, but you do have to be careful about that, you know. Um... Suppose you take your car into a used car lot. You know, you're going to trade up for something. And the used guy comes out and he's going to, well, we'll give you this much for your car. Well, when I said that, I didn't know you had that dent. And I didn't know you had that scratch. And look at this over here. And they begin to run down your car. 
you know. So I know we said 2000 but I didn't know it was in this kind of condition. The best I can do is 500 bucks. you know. That's lying because they're going to sell that car for 1500 tomorrow, you see. It can be. And we have to be careful about that, running things down, even in our businesses or in our relationships for sure, um, all the truth, not partial truths, not some truth, not most of the truth, only the truth they asked about, not the parts they didn't ask about, you know, lying. It covers a lot. And so I'll let the Holy Spirit guide us in that. He just says, do not lie to one another. That's your, just anybody, stop. Because you were renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all in all. Very similar to what he says in other places where he says that we're all equal now that we're in Christ. Everybody's saved as much or the same as each other. Um, Verse 12. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies. So we've been just told what to kill, put to death, to put away, now I want you to, here's what I want you to put on. So I don't want you to just have the absence of evil in your life. I want you to have holiness added to it. Put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. I'll tell you the results of that here in verse 15, but we'll stop there just to go over some of these things. Tender mercies are very important. Mercy is wonderful, but tender mercy is, is gold. You know, it's one thing for someone to overlook one of your transgressions. It's another thing for them to have a love for you and express it to you, even though, you know, that's a tender mercy. That's a gentle, a kindness. It's of above and beyond just not getting mad, but going even further with love. Just being kind. One of the most overlooked words, I think, in Scripture is just being kind to one another. Kind to everybody. Just kindness. There's a reason that we have names for, and I'm not even going to use the name because we have women that have this name. <laughs> I'm not looking at anybody, Karen. Um, <laughs> there's a reason that we have that. We, we have to have nicknames for people that are just unkind in areas. It's not a good thing. It's not representative of Jesus is the idea. These things do represent Jesus. Tender mercies is what God has for us. His kindness is what he has for us. Humility. We're not that great. We're just not. And I don't know that everybody feels this way, but there are times in my life where you feel like you're the main character and everybody else is the, is the supporting role members of your play. You know? No, they're actually living real lives around you. You know? They're having their own life. I think, and I don't mean my spouse, but my kids. You know? I got six little kids, and I, well, they're not so little anymore, but, you know, they're just, they're my, you know, they're my entourage for my life. Not really. They have their own lives. I'm their entourage in their mind. You know what I mean? There's a sense of humility that needs to come over us. And remember that, that the, the waitress who seems to be a, a side role in my life, I'm actually a side role in her, in her or his life. And how I make them feel and this interaction is going to change the way their day goes the rest of the day. I'll walk away from that, not knowing the emotions and everything that I've left behind me, knowing that I'm okay, I'm great, I feel great about myself, really showed them not to bring me a clean fork next time and all that. And they're miserable and can't get you out of their mind the rest of the day because of how bad you made them feel. I caught myself. How bad you made them feel, you know? Just humility. Meekness. That's power and control. Nothing like walking into a situation where you know you're correct. And you have humility. 
And you can calmly then, you never have to get emotional. You never have to yell over the person. You never have to uh, puff up to get your point across because you, you, have the act, you have the truth on your side, you know. Meekness. Long-suffering. Hmm. That means we need to suffer for a very long time with each other and with people. To suffer for a long time is, is one of the attributes of Christ that he has for us. <laughs> and I don't know how these two aren't the same, but they aren't. Long-suffering and bearing with one another. They're not. And I don't know what the difference is, except maybe that long-suffering would be something that, oh, I just, oh, those people, they're just constantly, uh, you know. Bearing is to lean into them, you know. Um, I don't, I don't avoid them. I don't uh, exclude them from my life. They're not just one of those problems I have in the back of my mind. I bear with them, you know. I, 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 I'll, I'll let them get in the car and drive to Kansas City with me, even though I think two cars would have been a lot more peaceful, you know, kind of thing. Uh, somebody's like, didn't you give me a ride to the conference last year? And I'm not talking about you. I got to be careful about my examples, but to bear with people, to, to lean into them. And, I, and I'm surprised when I actually do do this, bearing with people, I lean into them, into their situation, how much better it is. It just is. Um, and I'm not saying that's a novelty move for me. You know, one time I did le- you know, listen to somebody. No, I, I do a lot. I just, it's an attribute of Christ to bear with one another. Forgiving one another. And in case we don't understand what that means, because I get these questions all the time, and oftentimes people tune out at the comma, he does explain what it means to forgive other people and how and to what degree. If anyone that covers population of earth, if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so now I have to think about how Christ forgave me, so you also must do. It's not optional. It's not something I debate. This isn't where we become Bereans and see if God's word is so. It is. How did Christ forgive me? And so then the question I had, and maybe you've had it too, was what if they don't ask for forgiveness? Am I still required to forgive them? You absolutely are required to forgive them, even if they don't ask for forgiveness. Because that's how Christ forgave me. What if... He only forgave the sins that we asked for forgiveness for. And we're not forgiven for the sins of the things we didn't ask for forgiveness for. That's going to be an awfully scary moment at the gate. You got, oh, so close. You did. JD, there was that one. I meant to say, I meant to ask for forgiveness. I meant to and did are two different things, JD. I'm sorry. You know, whatever that looks like the trap door. We need to forgive people like we're, I I am washed with the blood of Jesus. I'm forgiven for all my sins, past, present, and future, for the ones I've done, for the ones I'm doing, for the ones I'm going to do, for the ones I know I did, for the ones I didn't know I did in, in, in ignorance. I'm forgiven for all of my sins. Therefore, how do I forgive other people? The way Christ forgave me. That's a tall order, I know. But that's what we're called to do. What does that look like? It means you just literally say, I forgive them. Your feelings may not be there yet. You still may cringe, but it's something you need to work on. And if you feel that cringe or you feel that twinge of anger, rage, or I think the Bible calls it here in a few minutes, um, bitterness, we need to stop and ask for forgiveness for the bitterness and, and God grant me, forgive, help me forgive them. I want to forgive them. I'm forgiving them. It may be a long crucifix forgiveness. This just won't die in my life. It just won't. I, I don't know how to explain it. There will be one day where that's not an issue in your heart anymore. It's all I can say. It may take you five years to forgive that person. Keep saying it and saying it and doing it and living it out. And eventually there it is. I asked God to remove uh, sins from my life. When I first got saved, oh my goodness, the laundry list of th- stuff God had to remove that I knew he needed to remove. And the stuff, I, some things went that day, some things went a week later, some things went three months later, some things went away five months later, five years later. 
And I don't have an answer for you as to why some go and some don't go immediately, immediately upon repentance. Some of them just linger. And I find all of a sudden one day, and you try to find that sin, or you try to find that emotion, that anger, that rage, or that whatever it is that you had that you asked God to take, it's not there anymore. I don't know where it went, but it's just not there anymore. It's gone. It just vanished, or it, it faded away almost. Now some will say, that's heresy, that's false teaching. That's what I'm experiencing in my walk with Jesus. And I'm saying, not saying you go by my experience, but I've rarely met a Christian that says, yeah, I stopped sinning the day I got saved. They didn't. Nobody has. Not that I've met anyway. And so that forgiving is, is a process for us, but we're called to do it. You must do it. And so if it's just words now, and it's just something that God has to own, and you need to spend a lot of time on your knees in prayer, then do it, you know, for your sake. But above all these things, put on love. I want you to do all these things. I want you to be kind, but I want you to do it lovingly. I want you to be humble, but I want you to be loving. You know, tender mercies need to be loving. Long-suffering needs to be loving. Not, woe is me, look at how I've long-suffered, but in a loving way. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body and be thankful. That is the fruit of the list of things we're to put on. Oh God, I just need peace in my heart. You can't have peace as long as you haven't forgiven them. You can't. You'll never have peace in your heart until you've forgiven them because you always think about it and it keeps coming up and you keep replaying the conversation or you keep going over these things. You're not going to have peace in your heart until you forgive them. So you let it go. If you want peace in your heart and you want God to rule in your hearts, they want that peace of God to rule, to have authority, to have dominion in your life, to let that be the norm. I'm a peaceful, I have peace in my heart. You've got to let those things go, put to death, and put on these things we've just gone over. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The word of God needs to dwell in us richly in all wisdom. Wisdom means you know how to use it. I'm all for memorization. We've gone over this. I don't think you can have wisdom of God's word unless you've understood it and it's in your heart and it's in your mind. So yeah, memorization is part of it. Um, but the wisdom part is how, how to apply that in your life um, to the point where I can teach and admonish other people. I mean, I hope that's what's happening here tonight. I hope I'm not regurgitating something that I've read from someplace, but it's actually touched my heart in such a way that I'm able to admonish you. And then you'll receive it tonight and you'll be able to admonish others when they're receptive. I don't think he ever says, no, honey, sit down on the couch. I'm supposed to admonish you. JD told me to at the Bible study tonight. You know, no, there needs to be a moment where there might be a question asked. Now you can grant the wisdom that God's given you through his word and share that with them. They may receive it, they may not, but this is it. I want you to speak the words of Christ and God's wisdom to other people. That's your advice. That's your solutions, not worldly solutions, not worldly ideas, but godly things. Um, and they're harder to share. It is harder to share God's truth than it is man's truth. I don't know why it's not received as well. God's word just is, is hard for people to receive. Man's wisdom, we'll think about all day long and we'll kind of receive it. Yeah, yeah. But God's word, it's so pure, I think. It's such a strong cup of coffee, God's truth is. I think it's hard for people to stomach sometimes, you know. That's a little more than I wanted. I was, you know, I wanted some wisdom in latte form. I didn't want espresso, you know, kind of thing. And that's God's word. It's pure and it's potent and it's strong, but boy, does it work, you know? Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks. That's a great, what a great litmus test. Can I do this in the name of the Lord Jesus? 
If I can't, then I shouldn't be doing it. How's that? What should, how do I know? Well, I'll just put that. I don't know how to make a bracelet out of it. You know, we tried that in the 90s. What would Jesus do? It didn't work very well. But what, what you do in word and deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, what I've been waiting for all night long, verse 18. <laughs> Wives, yeah, it should be in all caps in my opinion. Yeah, no, no, no. We've already got 19 down. We need really info. Wives, sub- wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting to the Lord. That's some espresso, right? Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. That's some more espresso. Yeah, double shot. It's a double shot. Now, now, now Carolyn should look and say, why is that a double shot? Is it that hard for you to be... Yeah. It was beautiful, though. We were so cringy around these verses, and I wish we weren't. There's nothing cringy about God's truth. There's nothing cringy about his love for us and his plan for us and his design for us. There's nothing cringy about it. The only cringe we feel is if it touches our flesh. Oh, God, that's a sore spot for me. Look, wives, if you're married, if you're a woman here that's married or going to be married, Submit to your own husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Now, he's expecting you to follow him as he leads you in Christ. Follow your husband in those ways. You don't have to be in front. You don't have to lead, you know. Your husband should be able to lead you in the ways of the Lord, and you should be able to follow along and submit. And that's a beautiful thing when God sees that, and you do that in your marriage. Husbands, you need to love your wives, and don't be bitter towards them. It doesn't matter how they respond in verse 18. That makes no difference. Your job is to do verse 19, to love your wives. They need that. Every woman in this room, whether they're married or not, needs to know that they're loved. They find a comfort and peace there. To, there's a settling that takes place, knowing that there, there are affections in their direction from their spouse, from their husband. It's peaceful. It brings them, um, well, it brings them great comfort. And they know when you're bitter towards them. And that unsettles them. Even, even if they think you're wrong as a husband, even if they, they, they don't think you have the right to be bitter towards them, the fact is that that's taking place and, and it's unsettling in the home. It's unsettling in their hearts. And an unsettled wife then has a very difficult time submitting to their... It's a circle. And so I'm calling on the men the husbands, if you're married or if you're planning on getting married, to love your wives and don't be bitter towards them no matter what. They may then do, verse 18. They may not do, verse 18. That makes no difference for you in verse 19. Likewise, wives, though, you're called to verse 18 regardless of whether 19 is taking place. The whole point of this is somebody has to be like Christ. It's great if both are. That's God's plan for both 18 and 19 to be in full function in a marriage. And that is the only way a marriage functions strongly and grows. And if one of those things is absent, it makes it very difficult for the other to take place. It makes it hard, but it does not excuse the person from fulfilling their roles as God has laid out for them. There's nothing to cringe about. It's meant to be You want peace in your heart? He just talked about letting the peace of God rule in your hearts. You want peace in your home and in your marriage? This, right here. This isn't the only place he says it. He says it in Ephesians. He says it all over the place. This is what it looks like. Ephesians is very detailed. Ephesians 5, read that. Very detailed. Verse 20. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. And I'm going to qualify that today in today's day and age. All things referring to the things of the Lord. Referring to holy things. Referring to the things of God and purity. If your parents are asking you to do something that's not holy and impure, you do not have to obey them. That is not of God. You didn't used to have to say those kind of things, but you do today. It's very wrong. 
to ask your kids to do something that's illegal, to ask your kids to do something that's a violation of God's law in any way, shape, or form, it's, it's wrong. And so as kids, obey your parents. Just like the wives are to submit in all things as fitting to the Lord, same rules apply there as well. I don't want to make women children, but I'm saying in the Lord, in the ways of God. Wives, you shouldn't be asked to do things that are illegal. You just shouldn't have to do things that are against God's law. Okay? Likewise, children, obey your parents. The last thing we need is some kid to walk away from church thinking they have to do everything daddy tells them to do tonight. You know? Because you don't know who's sitting in these rooms anymore. Who snuck in. Who's feeling unaffected by the things of the Spirit or God's Word. So... Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Provoking them can be a lot of different things. I provoked Bo. I can. I think of. I probably provoked all of my kids at one point. I'm angsty, or I'm in a mood, or whatever, and I'm I'm a little more uh, coarse with my jesting than I normally am, and and all. And it can be a lot to live with me. Imagine that. Um, and the kids put up with a lot, and they're very gracious and kind towards me. But I can, I can push the wrong buttons or the right buttons, depending on how you look at it, and it can provoke them and discourage them. You know, This isn't the relationship I want with you, Dad. This isn't the kind of conversation I want to have with you. you know? This is discouraging. You're provoking me. You know? um, we can also hold our kids to higher expectations than they can meet, too. You know? We can put such a, a level of, I mean, I've seen it, oh man, in Christian homes especially, and I don't want to say what is and what they, can, what they can attain to and what they can't, but sometimes there are some levels of holiness that they're calling their kids to that, yeah, we do want to be holy, but make sure that you're not asking them to be better than you are, you know? I mean, you hope that, you pray that, but you certainly can't, you, you, they're just... You can frustrate them. I'm never going to be good enough. You know, I can never reach that level. Well, God's word says, and they can't say, what about you, dad, mom? Because God just told them as kids, that's one of the things they can't do to be holy. They've got to obey their parents and keep their mouths shut. So as parents, it's our responsibility, very honest about our walk and our tendency to sin and understand that we're dealing with little people that are dealing with the same huge emotions you are, fighting the same huge battles that you are, and not winning most of the time as parents, a lot of times failing. They need a way to understand also that there's forgiveness, and there's mercy, and there's grace, and there's growth, and there's a progress, and there's steps, and there's all of that. They need to know all of that, not just the level that you want them to be at. Does that make sense? I hope. Lots of ways to provoke your children. I don't want to go to church anymore. There's a lot of reason people don't go to church or kids don't go to church after they leave the home. Either it wasn't lived at home like it was expressed at church. Bunch of fakes. Mom and dad. Putting their bow ties on and then they come home and they beat me to death. You know, forget that. If that's God, I don't want anything to do with them. That's an extreme case, but... We can provoke them and discourage them. We have to be careful. Bond servants, employees, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. Don't just do it because the boss is looking. Do it because that's the right thing to do because you're working for Jesus wherever you go. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. For you serve the Lord Jesus, or you serve the Lord Christ, he says. So when you work, you're working for Jesus, not your immediate supervisor. Okay. That is a tendency when you come into a new job is to find out what the level of expectation is and meet it, as opposed to exceed it. But as Christians, we're called to do everything as if we're doing it for Jesus, not beyond our ability but we're not to hold back, you know, what we can do because that's the level, you know. I don't want to do more than what everybody else is. So, but he who does wrong will be repaid for what he does and there is no partiality. Mm. Something to chew on. Um, 
he's not talking about some of you, you're going to go for hell for a little bit. You know, he's not talking about that. Don't misunderstand him there. But there is fruit for everything we do. There are consequences for everything we do. Uh, we plant good seeds. We bear good fruit. We plant bad seeds. We get bad fruit. And I think that's what he's talking about there. And that's where we close tonight. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this chapter. Thank you for Paul's heart. Nothing wrong with any of this stuff tonight. Nothing hard about it. It's nothing but your character, which we want. Nothing but being conformed into your image, which is what we signed up for. Um, That's what we want. We desire that. You're so pleasing and loving and great and beautiful. Of course we want to look like you. And these are just some of the things that you do. And so Lord, we pray that you'd help us to do these things. Tonight we want to we want to forgive those in our hearts that came to mind when that portion of Scripture came up tonight. We don't have to make it public. It's between you and us. But in our minds, we want to forgive them, Lord. And in our hearts, we want to forgive them. And uh, we're sorry for holding things against them. And uh, we want to forgive them like you forgave us. And we're so thankful for what you've done for us. We want to do the same for others and let them off the hook to relieve them of that burden of guilt and shame and to take that off of their shoulders so they can have peace in their hearts like you've given to us, Lord. We pray for us as husbands and as wives and as children and as employees that we would live and be like you wherever we go, in our relationships with each other, in our work, that we do it heartily as unto you. We ask for all these things. And Lord, we do pray for your Holy Spirit. That was one of the other things that really touched my heart, God, that you would be and we'd settle it tonight in our hearts, we deal directly with you when it comes to things you want to take away from our lives and things you want to add to us, that we would obey your voice, not see what other Christians do, but do what you've called us to do and to, and to obey you. We thank you for that still small voice that speaks to us, and uh, we want to obey. Lord, bless these folks as they go tonight. Thank you for holding off the storm for a little bit here and... and, uh, and uh, allowing us to spend time in your word and and allowing the kids to play outside a little bit and have their time with you and their teachers. Um, We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.